Hey, hey, welcome to Horns Up. This is episode number 52, right? That it is 52. Yep, we are on 52. Man. Yeah, we are on 52. And uh, sorry to disappoint all of you who are looking forward to listening to Lips Kudlo, but uh, we decided to scrap that plan. And for now. Yeah, for now. I mean, Lips will be coming on Horns Up, just not this episode. And that's because... We realized that uh, this episode, which comes out on February 13th, marks a very, very, very special milestone for anyone who's a heavy metal fan. If you're one of those metal nerds like us, you would consider today to be oh, 50 years since the birth of heavy metal. Yes, you would. Then that's because 50 years back on February 13, 1970, Black Sabbath released their first album, the self-titled Black Sabbath. Mind you, it was only released in the UK on February 13th and in the US and worldwide only in June later that year. But first comes first. And so February 13th, according to Hornsup, is Black Sabbath Day. Yep, and now we have a new tradition. Yes, this is a new tradition. It's the 50th birthday of Black Sabbath and hence we decided to scrap all our previous plans and try and talk Black Sabbath. And that's when we kind of really had to work hard in order to uh, find somebody who would not only help us fanboy over the album, but would help add a lot of context to it because, hey, we are young, so we weren't around when this album was released. True. And... B, we truly can't comprehend the gravitas of this particular release because this was one to completely change the soundscape of music in general by introducing the world to heavy metal music. Numerous names were thought of and then ultimately all it took was one phone call to Canada and lo and behold, the now veteran legendary journalist Martin Popoff came to our rescue. Yeah, man. I mean, it took one email and he was on board. And actually, he was the perfect person that we should talk to for something like this. Yes. And you'll find out why when we introduce him during the chat itself. Yeah. So if you've been craving Sabbath and haven't really had the time to read all the volumes of print material or type that's been churned out by the metal world <laughs> on this particular day to mark this fabulous occasion. Well, here is the entire story behind Black Sabbath, that fabulous album in sonic podcast form. Hope you enjoyed this one because we really did making this. This is Talking Black Sabbath with Martin Popoff on Horns Up. <laughs> And we're joined all the way from Toronto, Canada, by none other than Martin Popov. Martin, for those who don't know you, uh, well, he's how we've described him as the living encyclopedia of all sorts of hard rock and heavy metal. Uh, when I was a teenager uh, getting into metal, I used to read his articles in a magazine called Brave Words and Bloody Knuckles. So it's really great to have him on the podcast. He's authored over 90 books, including 75 biographies. Welcome to Horns Up, uh, Martin. How are you doing today? 
Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting. I've I've, I've never had a an interview from India. This is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, metal. The metal world has brought all of us together. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I actually discovered you on uh, your stint with uh, on Banger TV, where somebody mentioned that Martin Popoff doesn't read Wikipedia, but Wikipedia reads him. Is that really true? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Even when I'm writing these books, you know, I, I'm guilty of going to the Wikipedia pages myself and then I'm reading stuff and go, wow, that's a really good insight. And then I see, oh, it was by me. I guess I must have said that somewhere. So <laughs> so even even I, uh, yeah, I, unfortunately, I uh, I see my own stuff there and think, dang, I, I guess I already uh, knew that point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, the reason we've got Martin with us today is because of the date February 13th. In 1970, on that very day, Black Sabbath released their debut self-titled album, which means that this year, 2020, marks the album's 50th anniversary. And Martin, you have written four books on Black Sabbath. Uh, Black Sabbath, Doom Let Loose, An Illustrated History, Sabotage, Black Sabbath in the 70s, Born Again Black Sabbath in the 80s and 90s and Black Sabbath FAQ, all that's left to know on the first name in metal. <laughs> so undoubtedly, I think you're the best person we could discuss the band with. It's also a great reason for us to celebrate this very album, isn't it, Martin? Yes, it's pretty cool that it is the 50th anniversary. And as I've said in a number of places, in those books, I'm sure, but I also did a book called uh, Who Invented Heavy Metal, which was 120,000 words that ends in 1971. And of course, the answer to the question there turns out to be Black Sabbath. And what I did there is that I said, okay, you know, it definitely is that first album, but it's also, they had a second album in 1970, and then they had an even heavier album in 1971. So at that point, you know, they're they're competing with Deep Purple and Your Eye Heap, but Your Eye Heap and Deep Purple both kind of like, um, you know, uh, look down their noses at heavy metal, but Black Sabbath just gets heavier. So by the end of 1971, I definitely wanted to, to to drive home that point, kind of underscore it, that Black Sabbath invented heavy metal, and it was definitely with this first record that comes out, you know, 50 years ago uh, tomorrow. So, you know, we're looking at you to help us understand why their self-titled album is considered a legendary one. Why is it a milestone of sorts in heavy metal? So if you don't mind, I mean, and you've kind of talked a bit about it, but can you paint a picture of what rock and roll or music in general was before Black Sabbath came into being? Sure, absolutely. So basically, the first heavy sounds I always consider to be the likes of uh, Cream, uh, Jimi Hendrix. This is all 1966, 1977, even The Who to some extent with my generation and, you know, having that kind of violent drummer and buzzy bass and all that kind of stuff. So you know, obviously there's all kinds of others mu music too. I mean, rock and roll maybe starts in, say, 1956. The Beatles come along, kind of 1959, they make a splash, 1963, 64. But the heavy sounds are, as I mentioned, getting into 67. And then Detroit kind of comes into the picture and gives us uh, the Stooges, MC5, uh, Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes, which is kind of an early uh, use of feedback. Um, you've got SRC, uh, Mitch Riders coming from there. But basically, Stooges and MC5 are, are super heavy out of Detroit. And then at the same time, you've also got uh, from California, you've got Blue Cheer, 
you know, a lot of people consider Vincibus Eruptum, the first Blue Cheer album, 1968, as the first heavy metal album. And, you know, there's there's some some credence to that. But what I always say is that it was more like accidental garagey blue bluesy garage rock almost it wasn't it wasn't written in a in a heavy metal format in a way it was almost like it was just heavy because of volume and even their second album uh, outside inside is is actually an even better argument for the birth of heavy metal so so we're into in by by the end of the 60s you've got uh you've got a debut um, MC5 album, Kick Out the Jams, a live album, which is super heavy. Um, you've got a Stooges album, their first one, which is pretty heavy, but they don't have what this Black Sabbath record has, which is essentially um, a European conceit rather than a, an American conceit. It's not based in the blues. It's based more in classical music and what we call the uh, Diablos in Musica or the tritone, which is mm-hmm. what you hear perfectly on that first song, Black Sabbath, off of it, you know, the self-titled song of the album of the band, you know, after the rain and the bell. So so you get these really scary sounds that aren't particularly based in the blues. You also get uh, riffs and you also get scary content. So you're getting these guys talking. It's it's a little satanic. It's a little what, you know, in the UK they call hammer horror. So it's a little horror movie-ish. You've even got an album cover with the green witch on it and she's got a she's holding a black cat and they um, you know, I I hear they basically put a stuffed crow in the tree and it looks very scary and ominous. So all these things are way different than what you were getting from the states, which is essentially kind of like a like a hippie music. It's it's bluesy, it's garagey, it's psychedelic, it's hippie stuff, and uh, and it just doesn't have the same sort of like emotional force that that Black Sabbath album is. So 1970, it's basically that record at the very beginning of 1970. Even more so, another super important album is Deep Purple in Rock in the middle of 1970. It's even heavier and more modern than this. But Black Sabbath, again, bounces right back by October 1970 with uh, with Paranoid. So they've got two really heavy albums in that year. And really, nothing in America. America basically drops off. It doesn't even get any heavier. The Stooges kind of drop off. MC5 drops off. Mountain comes along. But there's really nothing heavy. So it's really up to, at this point, Black Sabbath, Your Eye Heap, and Deep Purple. And Sabbath are definitely the heaviest of those. You talked quite a bit about, you know, what was happening just before... Uh the release of Black Sabbath, was there any indication that music was getting heavier or doomier around that time, would you say? No, I would say no, because uh, it's it's a very interesting story. And I, I've got Jim Simpson and Olaf Viper and the Sabbath guys talking about it in this in this new Sabbath book that actually is just now launched in England. I think it's officially out um, on, on the same day as the first album. So this sabotage Black Sabbath in the 70s, I had it out as a self-published book before, but now it's through a UK publisher. Anyways, so in that book, there is the whole kind of... Um, uh, layout of how quick and how spontaneous that all was these guys basically you know they 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 thought about the hammer horror stuff they grew up with i think they saw maybe like a i believe they saw a movie poster for the black sabbath movie um but they essentially started right on the spot writing this kind of new heavier thing now one one interesting thing uh about the story is that their manager jim simpson 
and here they are in Birmingham. He's he's got the the blues bar, and they and they keep having all these heavy blues bands in. So um, there was a British blues boom going on, and Black Sabbath previous to Black Sabbath, when they were called Earth and and other mm-hmm. bands, Polka, Polka Tuck was another early name. They were essentially one of these heavy blues things, uh, blues boom bands. But the whole idea was. All of them almost instantly, including Jim Simpson, who had to book all these blues bands all the time, he he just basically said, you know, this blues thing is getting really boring. It's all by the rules. You know, there, there's there's rote chord changes and melody changes, and, and it's boring, and it's jammy, and it's long. Um, you know, uh, let's do something fresh. And basically, Geezer and Ozzy looked at each other, and they're, and they're, and they're just like coming up with this, this crazy heavy stuff, and it literally just developed on the spot. I mean, they're they're with the label Vertigo, uh, so there is this sort of um, what they call underground music, or you could call it progressive rock. I mean, it's essentially a progressive rock label, this Vertigo. Um, so there's this dark, heavy, progressive thing that's a little bit around, but basically Black Sabbath comes out of thin air with this. All right. Now, we know that Sabbath or the boys from Sabbath came together as a band in 1968, and started off oddly enough as a six-piece, uh, six-piece band. Uh, I think they were called the Polka Blues Band by then. And then they became Earth, and then finally they became Black Sabbath. Um, we just heard you talk about their roots as such. So can you delve into that a little bit more and kind of paint a picture of what Sabbath was like before they became known to the world as Black Sabbath? Yeah, so so they would play. Uh, I believe it's called Henry's Blues House in uh, in Birmingham. And like I say, Jim Simpson was their manager, and he also managed other blues bands. There was Trapeze around at the time. Move there, there. You know, Birmingham had a good scene. And you talk to the Sabbath guys, and they'll tell you there were tons of places to play, a lot of bars and stuff. So they were essentially playing a lot of blues and rock and roll covers. Mm-hmm. And some of their earliest songs were the likes of uh, Black Sabbath and even War Pigs, which shows up in, you know, uh, on, on the Paranoid album, super heavy song, total, total, you know, pioneering brand new heavy metal type song. They had that really early. It had some different lyrics and stuff. But, <clears throat> no, they were basically, you know, messing around. Um, just like any band, they were unremarkable like any of these British blues bands were. And just playing a combination of, you know... Uh, sped up blues which is boogie rock from the 50s and uh, and and this new blues so so they're they're influenced by the likes of Jimi hendrix and cream you know cream are the most notorious of these uh, british blues boom bands uh the yardbirds as well um and Jimi hendrix is is quite a bluesy player as well but he he had some pretty pioneering heavy metal i mean purple haze purple haze yeah. you could argue almost as the very first heavy metal song you know, I, I believe that's like early 1967. So, yeah, they were just basically unremarkable. I mean, they had they had uh, I don't believe they had any originals, really, that were um, that you would that you would call um, basically uh, most of their first originals, if not all of them, were actually really heavy songs. So, yeah, they they um, like I say, they, they just went from this thing that sounded like everybody else. Uh, straight into in, essentially inventing heavy metal. Yeah, oddly enough, and I'd like you to correct me on this if I'm wrong, the first track that the band recorded was Wicked World. That's also a sound that isn't the, the Black Sabbath sound that we all know and love today. 
Yeah, so Wicked World is uh, is one of these that you're right. I mean, it's a good point. It's a little bit transitional. Um, it's got a little bit of a blues structure to it, but it is so heavy blues boom that that it is almost re un unrecognizable as blues. I mean, I think it's much more heavy metal than it is blues. Uh, you say today. I mean, today can mean many things. Today can mean the rest of the 70s, all the yeah. 80s stuff, the 90s stuff. So I, I know what you mean, though. Um, it's not as modern as uh, as some of the other things like even the song black sabbath i suppose is a little more modern nib is definitely more modern um uh what else um the other ones there, there's some jammy stuff in there and there is even you know the odd thing is they put the warning on there right which is an ainsley dunbar uh, retaliation yep. Yep. song and even that it, it's kind of a very interesting choice because it's not exactly a blues song it's more like a dark heavy ballad so even that doesn't have blues structure to it. And then they also cover Crow Evil Games. That's the first thing. Yep. Even before their Vertigo, they're still on Phillips. Olaf Viper, you know, this idea of, okay, do do this cover of this band who's kind of part of our stable. And even that song, that song, believe it or not, is actually pretty modern heavy metal. I mean, it's probably even more modern heavy metal than Wicked World. But Wicked World is, is pretty darn riffy. I mean, I always think of a song like... Um, when Almond Brothers do Whipping Post, how heavy that is, right? And uh -huh. and that that or or Free doing like uh, all all um, all right now and a couple of the other ones that are that are you know like pre Bad Company songs. They're heavy. They're heavy blues songs. But Wicked World, if I put it in with everything from Free and Bad Company and the Almond Brothers, I I still say it would be more modern heavy metal than all of those. So you know, as the legend goes, after Wicked World something happens and the band ends up writing Black Sabbath. That song changes, you know, not only music as we know it, changes the entire dynamic of the band. It's a new sound. It's exciting. It forces them in a way to change their entire identity and, you know, naming their band the, after the song itself in a way. So tell us about that. I mean, you know, considering your interactions with the band and stuff, what was the whole thing that kind of sparked that? Or what was the catalyst to that? I don't know if I can explain any more than what I have, because the story is actually pretty vague. And literally, like I say, um, you know, a lot of a lot of bands get uncomfortable talking about this stuff because they don't really have that much to say about it. And I, I've heard directly from the guys and Jim from different angles. And it was essentially, you know, made up on the spot. I mean, literally, they, they just said. <laughs> Let's let's get some scary lyrics. Oh, let's put it to this scary music, this crazy riff that Tony came up with. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and Ozzy had a lot to do with the lyrics right off the bat. Um, you know, yeah. obviously, Geezer takes over and he writes 95 percent of the lyrics. But Ozzy was in there on, you know, on this early stuff like that. Um, but no, it, it was it was essentially. Um, Boy, wouldn't it be a cool idea? Nobody's nobody's tried to make scary music before. Is essentially what they they said to each other in no uncertain terms. They said, "Wouldn't it be wouldn't it be crazy to write music like a horror movie?" And and that's that's kind of what they did. Apparently, uh, isn't there some sort of a rumor that either Geezer or Ozzy, one of the two, uh, saw a dream or had a vision of this woman, uh, and hence wrote the song about that vision. 
No, I've, I don't think I've ever been told that one. And that just sounds like one of these crazy press stories that press people. <laughs> make up. I, I really don't think that's the case. I, I, but, but I definitely do believe this narrative about everybody kind of looking at each other and thinking, you know, either, either subconsciously or not that the, this blues boom is getting really boring. Um, and I know Jim Simpson was starting to get fed up with it and he's, you know, he's giving them suggestions and he's in there being helpful and stuff, you know, plus they're on this label there, there is, there is kind of progressive rock. Don't forget progressive rock is, is coming to birth at exactly the same time. You've got Jethro Tull and yes, 1969, right? You've got uh, Genesis, probably 1969. Every, every one of the big progressive rock bands is, is coming up at exactly the same amount of time. And a bit of this progressive stuff came from the likes of who it came from the likes of cream. And this label was going to be a very progressive label. So, so there was, uh, it was a confluence of things kind of all coming together. And if I can add one more thing, I mean, the, the other, amazing thing about the song black sabbath is daring to play at that slow tempo like that so the tempo is crazy and and it it actually you know invents black sabbath invents you know many times over but they eventually you know they essentially invent doom metal with the song black sabbath you know mm -hmm. right off the bat so so literally even before anybody plays anything, as soon as you hear rain and bells, you you know you're you're into doom, right? So so it's it's essentially uh, they invent this kind of music, and the crazy thing is nobody really tries to copy them and and be the second doom band all the way up into the likes of uh, maybe Angel Witch and Witchfinder General in the new wave of British British heavy metal and Trouble and Candlemass. But through all the seventies. It, the 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 wild thing is Black Sabbath stays a pretty distinctive band, which is which is incredible. I mean, for for eight records, uh, nobody really tries to copy Black Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's also very fascinating how the name Black Sabbath itself kind of becomes this uh, identity for the band, uh, and it all stems from this one song. I mean. Have you had any kind of research done or conversations with the band about why they chose Black Sabbath as their band name eventually? Well, no, because uh, they, they couldn't give you a deep answer anyways. But I mean, I mean <laughs> basically the idea, though, but it but there is a kind of a deepness to it. But no, basically, the idea was is they is they, um, you know, they knew of this movie and I believe it was in the Italian, first of all basically called black sabbath and it's it's a great name i mean it's it's um it's almost uh, i i always uh i always marvel how you can even get away with something like that i think people were in in certain ways way less tolerant of uh of you know religious uh you know, the opposite side, the dark side of religion, right? So in, in certain ways, it was it was like horrifying, um, you know, satanic stuff. But on the other hand, it was almost like people were a little more tolerant of it. So they kind of get away with this name, which is which is like a sacrilegious name. It's like it's like, hey, we got the Sabbath and now we got the Black Sabbath. Right. And then and then the other thing I, I'm always amazed with even more so is how they got away with the album cover for Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. I mean, that thing is so incredibly evil and it's out on warner brothers and it's out all over the world and it's they just keep the album cover and uh i i i i have a whole chapter on that in my um in my black sabbath faq book but uh but but you know unaddressed really is is this marvel at how 
Warner Brothers would even put out an album cover like that. It's it's in, it's incredible to me how how evil looking that album cover is, and it's and it's out on a major label, and it's not you know it's not in a black wrapper or a paper bag or anything like that. It's just out there, right? So, um, but no, I mean, uh, the I guess the other sort of narrative about all this is Geezer and his conflicted Catholicism, right? And and how he says, oh, I, I almost wanted to be a priest at some point. And then, you know, he said he painted his room black at one point, but I think I asked one or two of the other Sabbath guys and said, and they said, no, Geezer never painted his room black. So I'm, I'm not sure if that one's right. I, it, Rob Halford said the same thing, I think. he I think he said he painted his room black. Um, but anyways, and Geezer, you know, claims to have had some sort of, um, you know, uh, ghostly experiences or paranormal experiences. But Mainly, Geezer was was kind of like a a uh, conflicted Catholic, a depressed Catholic. Uh, you know, his lyrics are not satanic; they're more like warning you against the dark side and warning you against the evils of war and uh, and ruining the environment and nuclear uh, war, uh, nuclear proliferation. So, um, so he was not a satanic guy that way. But but he also was inquisitive and he looked into that stuff. And the other guys were were like, you know, marginally into it as well, kind of looking into it. It was a fascinating time. Britain had witches all over the place. They had, you know, famous witch covets and stuff. And there was the band Black Widow that they were constantly getting confused with. And Black Widow themselves actually did do like a like a, um, you know, a witch's Sabbath thing on stage. So Black Sabbath was constantly getting accused of being Black Widow and vice versa. Um, but no, that's that's about it on the name. I mean, it is it is a pretty brave and evil name. And then it, it got reinforced, of course, by the um, the upside down cross being put in that first album cover, which, you know, the guys had nothing to do with that. But, you know, th these are the times they thought, oh, let's just put an upside down cross in here. It kind of goes with the whole image. Let's do it. And so it just gets reinforced. Yeah. And, you know, the second story you talked about, I think, uh, the paranormal experience. I think I remember reading somewhere, probably it's one of your books, about them having those crosses made afterwards, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, everybody comes from a from a fairly religious family at that point. And, and you know, Ozzy's dear dad, Jack, made those crosses for them. And, uh, you know, they used them a lot and they were in a lot of photos and stuff. So so that's the other um, that's the other sort of uh, cool contradiction about Black Sabbath. You'd see, you know, these guys all with their with their, you know, long, dark hair and and they are Black Sabbath and yet they're wearing crosses and, and the crosses are not. You know, they're not uh, upside down or anything. They're not the way King Diamond would wear a cross, right? Or Glenn Benton or whoever, right? Um, they they were just basically crosses. So you could say they were worn ironically, but really with Black Sabbath, they weren't because those guys were like the salt of the earth, just good guys. They were who they were. They were working class guys. They were wearing these crosses. You know, they 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 even said, you know, as as simple people, simple working class people might say, they even said, well, we're wearing them to to ward off evil. Um, and they probably, you know, a, a small percentage in their minds believed that because they they realized they were creating, you know, an un unholy din and their and a lot of their lyrics were scary. So they probably thought they did have uh, some reason to be uh, needing a little protection to ward off evil. All right. Uh, the album, again, as we've touched upon it uh, a bit earlier, contains seven tracks. The Wizard, Behind the Wall of Sleep, NIB, Evil Woman, a cover of Crow, Sleeping Village, and Warning, which, as you mentioned, is an Anzibel Dunbar cover. 
Now, we all know about uh, Tony Iommi's accident in work and how it changed his playing style. I guess that's also part of the reason for what sets the music on this album apart from what was happening all around the world and uh, in heavy metal or uh, hard rock at that time. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I may not be even right about this or have a very intelligent answer about this, but, um, you know, I know his accident definitely made him string his strings looser. Um, I, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly where the downtuning starts. I believe the downtuning gets really serious on uh, Master of Reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I have some quotes about what they're tuning down to there. So there's not much of that going on, I don't think. Um, you know, the other thing, I, it's funny, I'm doing a Saxon book right now, and uh, and um, Graham Oliver from Saxon also has half a finger missing. Uh, same kind of thing. I think he he busted it off in a car door, and it, it makes him play a certain way. And I think, um, you know, this might be a little bit conjecture, but I think it, it makes you more straightforward in your riffing, uh, what you're going to come up with for riffs. Um, so that possibly affected him as well. But I don't know. I mean, I, I know I, I may be uh, I may be um, sort of almost talking out of turn or being erroneous here, but I I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure how the finger thing really affects him being like the father of doom or the father of, of riffs. Really. I guess it's just putting, or the way we view history, which is always in hindsight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, of course they do, they do become, you know, pioneers of down tuning. And I know he has, has his strings pretty loose as well. Yeah. Not to mention the lovely dynamics between, uh, geezer and and uh, the drummer and the entire band is coming together. It almost sounds like they're a jam band in parts, not a riff-oriented metal band or what the genre itself would come to be known for. Yeah, so that comes from the British blues boom background mm-hmm. of them, and yep. and you know just in general, I mean those all those bands being their heroes. So you have to be able to jam, and uh, and this album is the most you know i sensibly speaking it, it there's a reason it's the first album it is the most dated sounding of all of them and it is the most yep. jam of all of them so but you know don't forget also i mean they're recording this album basically live off the floor in in a, in a few days a couple of days or whatever it is right they, yeah. the the time frame always gets shortened every time they do <laughs> it, right yeah but, so apparently uh, yeah apparently wikipedia states that this was all recorded in just a single day October 16th, 1969. And the second day, they just left it up to the mixing engineer to mix this entire thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can't remember exactly the stories they say, but I, they do say things like eight hours and 12 hours or whatever. But, you know, the other important point to make here, though, is that uh, they're essentially a power trio. They've got the same configuration as The Who. They've got a lead singer who doesn't play anything and those two guys. So if you're going to play... You know, if you're going to play live off the floor, obviously when Tony's off soloing, which is often on this record, it's it's up to you're basically hearing a soloist and a busy bass player and a busy mm. drummer. They're all they're all essentially being, you know, the who uh, at that point. So, you know, you don't get a lot of um, you, you, you definitely hear the separation of what they're doing. And when you are a power trio and, and they are playing essentially live, you're going to get more of that jammy quality. All right, and this is the part I was actually waiting for the most in our conversation. So 
I want you to go first on this, Martin. Which is your favorite track off the album and why? Well, I would definitely say, I've got my copy in front of me here. I would definitely say it would be uh, NIB, um, simply because I think it is the most direct and accessible and least jammy, and it hits you right between the eyes. And for all those reasons, I think it's the most modern uh, metal song on here. Um, yeah, it's just it's just really stomping and really big beat and heavy, and it's uh, you know of a reasonable length. Um, it's not it's not confusing, you know, uh, you know, uh, rolling into these other songs. Uh, you know, I, you know, the whole story about how they had to split up the songs here because it kind of legally gives them extra royalty money or something when they split up the name, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Another thing, just to mention, <clears throat> I know oh, I, I don't think we talked about this, but. Um, you know, in the UK, they got Evil Woman, the crow cover on it. In in North yeah. America, that got switched out for Wicked World. So what we got was only one cover. We only got Warning as a cover, and the rest of them were all original. So we definitely got a much better version of the album, although I wouldn't really say much better because that crow song is a really good thing to cover. So so it's, you know, Evil Evil Woman and uh, and Wicked World are, are almost a tie, but you would rather have the original. Right. Animesh, yeah. your turn. Uh, well, Martin kind of answered for me because for me it's NIB too. And for me, of course, uh, there's a caveat there that being a bass player and hearing that solo at the beginning. Yeah. Um, basically. Yeah. yeah, basically that's that's half of the reason why NIB is the, my favorite song of the album because I've been practicing to that song and to that entire solo section etc right from the time when i was picking up bass so it right. becomes one of the one of the default tracks that you go to when you are trying to learn how to make your way around the frets yeah and yeah that just made me fall in love with that entire song but yeah yeah i think it would be nib first followed by black sabbath and then the wizard yeah well, and, I'm, I'm a drummer, so I'm Evil Woman in it too, because Evil Woman for me is one of these songs that yeah. really made me think of Black Sabbath as not just a scary band. Peter? Okay, for the first time in any of our episodes, I think we're all going to be unanimous when we say <laughs> NIB. <laughs> and trust me, we've done so many episodes, it's very rare something like this happens. Yeah. Uh, but... I'll I'll tell you why uh, why uh, the other tracks kind of differ and why NIB stands out for me. I mean, when I first listened to the album, I still remember plugging in it on my uh, discman. I just bought uh, the CD. I think it was at discount or something, so I finally could have it. And like Black Sabbath kind of seeps you in, and I'm like, you get that eerie feeling. You have Wizard, which kind of goes again. But by the time you come, and because this was on CD in the middle, by the time NIB comes in, that solo, and you're like, okay, this sounds different. And then, you know, Ozzy starts singing in there, and I was like, okay, wow. This is, and by by then, I wanted to play the track again and try and listen and figure it out. So, so many years later, it's still on the top of my head. And that was one of the things about that track. I mean, there's a lot of comparison made that, you know, they sound a bit like Cream and uh, it's a very similar thing, but they made it their own style. I mean, bands all over the world, including India, have tried to 
work their chops, jam to it. Till date, there's probably a band that's kind of playing it somewhere or the other in some pub. So yeah, man. For that reason, NIB definitely. Yeah, the other funny thing about NIB is that that is one um, the the type of song like uh, Iron Maiden, where Ozzy, you know, people when they denigrate Ozzy or put him down and say, "Oh, his vocal melodies just follow the riff," which is not true. I mean, very few of them actually do, but this is one of the ones that does. So, in a sense, um, Ozzy is like an extra track of rhythm guitar in a way on this one, which helps drive it forward. And I was going to say, I'm a drummer, and that's definitely the most fun song to drum on the record too. I must ask you this, since we're talking about NIB so much. Um, apparently, Giza Butler has gone on record and said that originally it was Nib, which was Bill's beard. Yeah, that's the one I hear the most. Obviously, you know, it, it's said to you know stand for nati- nativity in black. But yeah, they called they called Bill Nibby, you know, because of his beard, like a pen nib. And so yeah, a lot of these stories just have like stupid answers to them. It, all, it almost like diminishes uh, how cool the song is. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, initial reviews and reception for Black Sabbath wasn't great. Uh, Rolling Stone's Lester Banks described the band as just like Cream but worse, and he dismissed the entire album as a shock, despite the murky song titles and some inane lyrics that sound like Vanilla Fudge playing doggerel tribute to Aleister Crowley. The album has nothing to do with spiritualism, the occult, or anything much except stiff reactions of Cream cliches. What do you make of this reaction? Was the world just not ready for a Black Sabbath? Yeah, th- this is a fascinating field for me. And I, somebody should write a book on it. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's somebody else. But I love when there are these albums that are completely groundbreaking and there's nothing to compare them to. But if you're a rock critic, you have to compare them to something. So because there's nothing to compare it to, he has to compare it to Cream, which is sensible. I mean, it's probably the closest thing to compare it to. Um, I mean, he could have compared it to MC5. He could have compared it to maybe The Who, but that would be more the obscure point I was making earlier. Or um, what else? I mean, Beatles, She's So Heavy. I, who knows, right? Jimi Hendrix. But um, essentially, uh, it's it's really wild reading these reviews when there is nothing to compare it to. I remember also, you know, I was fascinated. There's a... Uh, there's an ad for Judas Priest Sad Wings of Destiny that 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 says the heaviest band in the world or mm-hmm. the heaviest record in the world or something. And it's like, wow, that, that actually is, believe it or not, super accurate. I mean, that was like the next step up. There was really between 1970 and 1976, there was almost nothing that that like brought took. There were a lot of great metal albums, but nothing took metal forward the way Sad Wings did. So. So, yeah. So Lester Bangs is. But but the thing is, um the other fascinating thing about this whole field, about how, how rock critics have to stumble over their words to describe something that they can't, you know, there's no comparison previous. Sometimes they, they get it right and realize this is something new. And when they're really good, they realize it's amazing, too, at the same time, right? So I've yeah, seen, yeah. Uh, you know, I've seen reviews of like Pantera, Cowboys from Hell or uh, or Metallica, you know, Ride the Lightning and things where the guys go, holy crap, this is not only really groundbreaking, but it's really good. And so often they get them right. Right. So 
So here, so this was Lester Bangs, right? He's supposed to get these things right, and he's supposed to love this stuff. And later on, he very quickly becomes a major convert to the heavy metal cause and loves all this stuff, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's funny. Uh, there, there is really nothing to compare it to. And the other thing is, you know, you're always going to look down on a baby band. This is a band out of nowhere with this stupid record that's going to sell 500 copies, you know, whatever, right? Although Black Sabbath... The crazy thing is, they were a hit right from the start. I mean, they 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 just everybody loved them right away, which is quite amazing. They were they were on their way very very quickly, right? Um, because you know the public did realize whether they were realizing it on a super intellectual level or not, but they did realize that this was something completely fresh. And essentially, probably what they realized more than anything is is the is the lyrics and the image. They just realized that. Wow, this is the first horror metal, uh, ho horror rock album of all time. Uh, that that wasn't full of you know flutes and progs and stuff. It wasn't Black Widow and it wasn't Coven or whatever, right? Um, it was it, the music actually matched the image. Um, so yeah, it was it was a hit right off the bat. Yeah, and you know, you touched upon this earlier, but we have to dwell a little bit on this: the artwork. I mean, the eerie painting of a woman in all black against the English house. There's been like questions, who is that woman? Or should we believe the rumors that it's Ozzy Osbourne in drag? What can you tell us about the artwork and what was your first impressions? Well, a really cool story just broke this morning about uh, there's a, this massive article that Rolling Stone did on this record. Yeah. And they interview her. And uh, and they find out who she was. And she says she was like 18, 19 years old. And she was just hired by Keith McMillan to come out and do this. And they picked her because she was short. Yeah, you know this. I know you know this. But you said it was a painting. Obviously, it's not a painting. It's a photo, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, and uh, and he he gave her a cat to hold. And uh, she says something about how. Um, and then, um, you know, there was like they tried fog machine and that didn't quite work. So they did. There's no fog in the picture, really. Uh, so this is the old mill house. Uh, it's it's just this place in Britain. Um, and uh, yeah, they. they um, oh, yeah. That's the other thing it said. They use some sort of aircraft lighting deal or something to uh, to make the lighting all strange. So that's why the lighting is kind of pink. Um, but yeah, it's just a brilliant album cover and it's, it just captures perfectly the tenor of the times, you know, the man, myth and magic magazine and, and Kenneth Grant and these, uh, you know, what's, uh, Steph, is it Steffi Grant? So, anyways, you know, there's witches covens around and there's all these, uh, satanic, you know, camp horror movies that are being made in Britain. So witchcraft's kind of like a, like a thing. It's like a swing in sixties, all the rage sort of thing at the time. Right. So, um, it just it just matched perfectly, and then and then yeah, the the, the really cool old uh, type style at the top. So it's really timeless. Obviously, there's nothing modern about it. It looks like it looks like something that could be right out of uh, you know the 1600s, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. What's also yeah. to note about the artwork is the fact that it was the sound of Black Sabbath that sold the album literally because there's no photo of the band there. Was there a thought to how the band was marketed at all? Because usually debut album, you have to have the photo of the band. Yeah, um, I don't think I can answer that. That's a great question. I don't think it was particularly deliberate. You know, a lot of these things back then are done out of laziness. Um, <laughs> you know, 
probably when they were putting the putting the thing together, this is literally probably how it happened. I would say this is how it happened. Probably when they put the thing together, the band was on tour, so they were two, three hundred miles away. Um, they said, okay, we got to get this thing finished, put the artwork out. Oh, it's a shame we don't have a picture of the band. Who cares? Just put it out. So it's probably not, oh, we want to, you know, have the have the band mysterious. It's probably simply we didn't have a picture handy when we put the thing together. I mean, the guys were all totally surprised when the thing came out and they looked at it and saw the upside down cross in it and all that kind of stuff, right? So um, I, I don't believe, um, you know, I may be wrong, but I, I don't believe there was, was much heavy thought put into whether you should put a photo of the band on it or not. Um, but yeah, it definitely adds to the mystique. It just, it does make it look, uh, more mysterious of an album. And, and even the way that, you know, the songs are in that little square on the back and then, mm -hmm. you know, the back cover is a continuation of the front cover. Vertigo Records was just very artistic anyways. Olaf Viper had a real vision and Keith McMillan working on these things. So if you lined up all those early, um, Vertigo albums all in a row, uh, you'd see a lot of really cool, freaky artwork. All right. So... You know, we've talked so much about this landmark album, but if we could sum it up, what makes Black Sabbath's self-titled debut album a landmark album in music history? What would you say? Well, I, I guess we've we've sort of gone around and said this before, but I, I'd say in a very simple form, you know, when they say elevator pitch, right? Um, yeah. I would say it invented heavy metal. Um, and, and it invented it in a way that makes a break with the past. That's really the big thing. The, the previous heavy metal, which is all from America, essentially, um, was, was anchored to the past in a lot of different ways. It was psychedelic rock. It was garage rock. It was blues rock, right? This, this is not a psychedelic album. It's not a blues album. It's not a garage album. So that is the big difference. And again, I think part of that difference comes from the idea that, when you're raised in Europe, you come from more of a classical background, uh, you know, as a, as a kid and going through school. If you take music classes in school and all that stuff, all your big uh, musical heroes, all the classical composers came from Europe. So so I think I think you have classical kind of built into your being. It's a very traditional place. You know, all your TV music and your anthems and all that. There's a lot of classical um, just floating through your head, even as a teenager. Whereas in America, you know, America comes from a blues background. So I, I think that's the, that's the big difference. It, it basically right there at the beginning of 1970, you get a break from the past. Yeah. And you know, for me, really, uh, what happens is kind of what you've, uh, kind of kept saying is that from the time, uh, the album released, they had Paranoid, and then you had nothing else for like six years, which kind of could match it. And for years later, I mean, till today, in 2020, you have bands trying to replicate the sound, trying to get this, and they struggle, even though, you know, it was four ordinary guys from Birmingham who decided, who had a blues band, who decided to do something different. I would disagree. You know, why I would disagree is this. Um, <clears throat> so I, I do I do find it commendable of Black Sabbath and really cool that nobody tried to copy them through the 70s, right? But it, essentially, starting with the likes of um, 
Witchfinder General, Candlemass Trouble, and then that whole Stoner Rock Doom thing that came up. You know, we have this, this is a very odd debate, but we have it all the time. And I, and I truly believe this, that probably there are, um, there are a thousand albums that are better than every old Black Sabbath album if you didn't know when they came out. So I would disagree that nobody has done it quote unquote better, but there, you have to give a lot of praise to those who did it first and invented it. That's the thing. So, so no, I, I would say that many, 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 many doom bands make music as cool and as crushing as cathedral is an example, man. I listen to cathedral all the time. I listen to some of the stuff. Those guys came up with the production, the riffs, the vibe, the lyrics, everything. I, I think, I think cathedral is cooler than black Sabbath in, in a certain way, but they are doing it all 20 years later. You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're making all this classic, amazing, amazing doom, better doom than black Sabbath, but they're doing it in 1995 and 1997 and 2000. So, you know, they're, they're, they're literally learning from the giants who did it first. So it can be done. I, I, it, I know it's a, it's a funny thing that we have this, debate all the time i think the first five motorhead albums are better than the i mean i think the latest the last five motorhead albums are better than the first five motorhead albums i think deep purple with steve morse is way better material than the classic lineup so certain bands um there is this thing that that you can improve on the old stuff records are made to be broken i i i equate it almost to like sports in the olympics records are broken all the time you know i we we have this discussion when neil peart died it's like i go you know what i i can listen to certain prog metal albums or dream theater albums or porcupine tree albums and in the first 10 minutes of the record the guy's done 20 things harder than all the 20 hardest things neil peart ever did in the whole catalog yep. right so that happens right um but anyways, that's uh, that's that's a whole nother argument. Black Sabbath, they totally invented this, and then they totally reinvented it for eight whole records before the '80s even started, and anybody even tried to copy it. So that's pretty amazing. Yep, it you know, is. You you gave us ideas for more episodes that we we can get you on in the future. I'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> that's my. <laughs> So thank you so much, Martin, for taking time out uh, and talking to us on such a momentous occasion. I mean, 50 years later, uh, after the release of the album, here we are uh, sitting in two different parts of the world discussing it. So uh, thank you so much for taking your time out to talk to us. Very cool. I, uh, I totally enjoyed it, guys. This has been fun. So before we let you go, uh, for all those listening, what are you currently working on and what's next from you? Well, I just had a Merciful Fate book come out and that has sold really well. I sold out and I just got a reprint in today. Um, so uh, there's that. Um, I've got a Rush book coming out. I've got three Rush books, three big hardcover Rush books, long books. Uh, Anthem Rush in the 70s is out in May. And then later in the year, end of the year, will be uh, Anthem Rush in the 80s. And then next year will be uh, Driven, Rush in the 90s and in the end. And they're, they've all been written for months. They're all finished. Um, and so, yeah, and I'm working on a Saxon book. That's about three quarters done. And other than that, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. Um, I, may, I may do a King Diamond book. Um, 
I may do um, a book where I anthologize all my writings on uh, Blue Cheer, MC5, The Stooges, New York Dolls, and Dictators in one book um, and call that Gimme Danger and then uh, just kind of have, you know, long chapters on all those bands. Um, so, yeah, that's about it. But right now, I, my Rainbow Book just uh, went back into print. So my latest ones have been the Rainbow Book, the Merciful Fate, and the Two Iron Maidens. And I have all of this at uh, at my site, martinpopoff.com. I sign them and sell them out of here. And uh, there's PayPal buttons for everywhere. And uh, glad to send them to India as well. I've only, I, I swear, I, I think I've maybe sent one or two books ever uh, all the way to India. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I own one of them <laughs> that well, you probably sent. <laughs> but did I mail it there? Really? Yeah. No, no, I picked it up off Amazon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, so, yeah, I'm I'm sure I have a lot of books there that are from Amazon. So, so I have a lot of books that are through big publishers that are that are that way and distribute all around the world. But I do a lot of self-published ones as well, which you can only get from me uh, from from my website. So. On that note, Martin, once again, thank you so much. Thank you very much. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. So, Peter, one line that Martin says at the very end that kind of sums up this entire episode is that this album invented heavy metal. Your reaction to that? I agree, man. It's one of those things that when you go back and then because I'm a metal nerd, self-confessed. I've actually read the books and one of those was the one that uh, Martin wrote. It's just kind of crazy to imagine that these four guys from Birmingham came up with this music. It wasn't packaged. It wasn't, you know, a force or something like that. It just happened naturally. And the rest is history, as they say. Yep, absolutely. So... Uh, we urge all of you to kick in, find those old Sabbath t-shirts, maybe wear them loud and proud, or just blast them on however you like to enjoy your music. Because February 13th will go down in history as the day Black Sabbath was released. Phew, so that was Black Sabbath. And now I perhaps hope all of you listeners, maybe the one or two out there, uh, can understand why we chose not to feature Lips or Anvil on this particular episode. But don't you worry, he's coming on the next episode of Haunts Up. So, till then, why don't you just, I don't know, grind some more metal on metal. <laughs> Peter's got nothing to say. He's absolutely lost it because of the alliterations again. Yeah. Anyways, you know where to find us, hauntsuppod.com. Till next week, horns up. Horns up. <laughs> <laughs>